Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. On this episode of Flourishing Together, I'm excited to introduce you to two people who have been on the Junto journey with me since day one, Kathy Carroll and Dave Dyson. We're going to start with Dave, founder and CEO of Eclipse Telecom and a Junto alumnus from our very first year. He'll be followed by Kathy Carroll, founder and CEO of Legacy Onward and a longtime Junto mentor. Dave Dyson founded Eclipse nearly 10 years ago, and today it's a leading provider of enterprise telecommunications management and consulting. Dave and his team were among the first few companies to enroll in our apprenticeship program back in 2013. Yet today, I consider him to be more of a friend than a customer. That's because we got to know each other at a very deep level over five years when I facilitated and participated in his CEO peer forum. And beyond his entrepreneurial life, Dave is a hockey player and successful hockey coach, leading several high school hockey teams to both state and national championships. In fact, one of the highlights of our friendship for me was when I went to one of his hockey games about two years ago and watched him coach. For someone with his competitive spirit and drive, I was pleasantly surprised at the tranquility and joy he displayed during those two hours behind the bench competing against one of the toughest teams of his club. Hopefully you'll get a sense of that during our conversation. Welcome, Dave. It is an absolute delight to have uh, you as one of our first alumni of the Junto Institute joining us on Flourishing Together. Thanks for having me, Raman. We're going to start, as we customarily do, with the emotion wheel, and I would love to hear how you're feeling this morning, or more specifically, what you're feeling, and maybe even why. Uh, Yeah, so a lot of positive emotions um, for for a variety of reasons, but right now, I... uh, the moment I'm feeling very optimistic and stimulated works as well. Um, I'm having a lot of fun conversations at work as I've been focusing on my clarity of the vision for, for what I'm trying to accomplish there and um, fun also meeting tough conversations. And so I'm, I've got an, another couple of those scheduled for today with some of the folks at the office and I'm enjoying that a lot. And then, you know, conversely, uh, it's, it's not on the wheel. I'm going to make up a day of emotion. I'm very fired up to be sitting here with my friend to, uh, to talk Junto, talk, uh, talk life, and uh, just absolutely excited to be here with you. And, and so it's just feeding a lot of really positive emotions, that and the fact that it's finally summer in Chicago. So just, just a lot of good stuff going on right now. I am actually, I'm going to be very general today. I'm feeling a lot of joy and a lot of love. The love relating to uh, my two daughters who you've met and uh, what they're going through as young adults and uh, the transitions that they're experiencing uh, and the conversations we're having around that. Uh, And the joy directly related to what you just said. It seems like we finally actually have summer in Chicago. Uh, So it is a time of true joy. So thank you for sharing and uh, let's dive right in. what is your first recollection of leadership? Um, it, it's funny because I, I wish like a lot of people, I had this, this story of like, I was the top paper boy at seven and everybody else was, was acknowledging that fact. It's um, I, I, Leadership's a ha- happy accident for me. And, and my first sense of leadership had to do with sports. Like a lot of people, it was, it was hockey. Uh, I'd been playing since I was five years old and 
you know, growing up and through high school and then in, into some college stuff. And probably, you know, around that time of, you know, 18, 17, 18 years old, I started to get this sense that I was just one of those guys who was, you call a hard charger. And it wasn't necessarily that I set out to lead. It was that when you're going hard, when you're charging, when you finally do turn around, you realize there are people behind you. And that's, that's my personality. And, and so uh, early on, it was, I think a lot of people are just looking to follow somebody who's willing to go sort of cut the brush and, and, and be the, be the guy who goes face first into the world. And I'm that guy. So that's my early style of leadership. And I think as, as you get older and you mature and you realize whether I like it or not, people are following my lead. Uh, you, you have to start to shape into something resembling a, a fully formed leader as opposed to the the bull in the china shop style which i've always referred to myself as as a younger guy so i, I don't have this crystallizing moment you know going back to my my hockey side of my life being a hockey coach i, I remember somebody a parent trying to insult me one time saying have you ever gotten involved in anything you didn't try to take over and i'm like i absolutely have not <laughs> because because i do have this sense that i can help profoundly impact results by by taking the reins, so to speak. So, um, yeah, leadership wasn't something I, I was I was born into. It was a happy accident, and and I've embraced it. And so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm jealous of all these guys who have these crystallized moments from youth where uh, they it was divination. They just they knew they were leaders from birth. Uh, that's not me, man. And it's funny you say that because, uh, as you might imagine, we've already had uh, several people who have shared those stories, um, and it's always fun hearing them because. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy hearing stories of people, especially you know, in the world I'm in, entrepreneurship, who started who started their business at eight years old, right? Whether it was the lemonade stand or the lawn care service, or yeah, brought all the kids together to do something like that. So it doesn't surprise me that you're a little bit off the beaten path with that one. All right, so I want to start with what I think is probably the best way to capture Dave Dyson. You're a classic example of someone who, on paper or whose external persona, as I like to call it, can be perceived to be at odds with your true self. And I'm able to say that because I'd like to think I've gotten to know you a fair amount over the years. And for the benefit of our listeners, when I talk about his external persona, um, Dave's from Buffalo, New York. He has spent most of his career in IT and telecom, in sales, in a very established uh, US industry and on the front line is sales. He mentioned he's a hockey player and today's a hockey coach. If you haven't already gotten a sense, he's got a big personality. He has been with the same person for almost 18 years now, almost 18 years, but they're not married and so on. And so that's kind of who he is on paper. But what is his true self is that he's an incredibly self-aware human being. He has a very strong, sensitive, emotional, and thoughtful side to him. Um, even though they're not married, as you can tell with 18 years, he's deeply committed to his life partner. Uh, he is extraordinarily well-read and someone who is a deep thinker. So um, I'm setting all that up to help us understand how you personally reconcile those two sides. Um, it, it's an interesting question because, at least with me, I don't think there's a reconciliation. It's a, it's sort of a a quilt of all of the things that make up Dave because it's not as if that public facing persona isn't real. Um, I am hyper competitive. I am hyper aggressive still. 
Uh, I'm also a very sensitive guy. I'm also a nerd who, uh, you know, reads stuff that would put most people to sleep. I, I, I like opera. I like hip hop. I'm all over the map because that's all what's interesting to me. And, um, I, I think for me, it's about a toolkit. Um, I, I've just evolved my toolkit as I've gone on. I've, I've learned and I've grown. And um, we've talked at length of, uh, you know, the men in my life growing up uh, as emotional, emotionally available role models maybe weren't awesome. They showed their love in really interesting ways, but it, it wasn't verbalized. It was very, um, you know, this very blue collar ethic of, you know, men are tough when women are affectionate. And and I've just continued to add tools to my toolkit, um, and a lot of it is because of uh, you know Mara, my partner, uh, Sadie, my daughter, who are forever challenging me to to get better. My team, who's challenging me to be more available. Uh, I always like to joke I'm with the I'm what the kids call authentic these days. So um, I, I just try to be myself, and and on a given day, it, it could be it could be any piece of that. It could be you know a little more old school day, a little more rough and tumble. It could be this this very um, I try to be enlightened and I, I try to be aware of the world and I and I try to think about uh, other people's feelings and emotions when I'm behaving and when I'm acting. So uh, it, it's all just toolkit. As, as I like to say, um, you know, I've, I've expanded that 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 tool set over the years. Um, but asshole's still a club in my bag. I can pull it out when I need it. I imagine that. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I haven't seen that a whole lot, um, or I should say experienced it. I think I've seen it, but I haven't experienced it. Uh, but I appreciate that you've got that still in the bag. So uh, a few years ago, you went through a business divorce. Uh, you and your business partner uh, broke up, um, and uh, he went separate ways while you stayed with the company and continued to lead it. And uh, he was a longtime friend of yours. Uh, and I know you guys were, were really close, and I think you're still close. Tell us what that was like, that whole process of going through that type of a split. It sucked. Uh, there's no really other better way to say that. It was It was a long process. It was a um, emotionally, mentally, and, and, and even physically draining process. I, uh, I love Todd. I, you don't start a business with somebody happenstance. You, like, you, you, you go into something with somebody because at that moment in time, you have a shared belief that you can go create something together and do something. And that's, that's a special bond. And it, and it takes a lot of trust in one another. And, um, like a lot of folks, you know, years go by and, and you're so busy in the firefight of business of, of growing a business that, um, when you can finally come up for air, you look and you go, Holy cow, we're building two different things and, and our, our visions aren't congruent anymore. And, and so you sit down and you try to reconcile those visions and uh, and then you go along for a little while more and then but those those chasms continue to widen and it, divorce is the exact right term because there's a lot of emotions and um, you know there may not be things like a home or children but there's this thing you've sort of birthed together uh, at stake and um, yeah that, that that process was uh, not a fun one we in in our worst moments of it and there and there were you know, down moments of it. We, we tried to remember that we, we actually respect each other and like each other as human beings. And we both have humanity and we, we both have different perspectives, but in the end, um, you know, this organism that we hatched called Eclipse needed to go in this new direction. And, um, and we went through every possible iteration, Rami, you, you know, the story as well as, as anybody that, what does it look like if I leave? What does it look like if he leaves? What does it look like if we both leave and sell the company? You know, we had all these iterations, and 
the one we ended up on was was where we are today, where I'm still sitting here and, and you know, Todd's um, in a completely new industry and, and sort of reinvigorated by uh, newer tech and things he wants to be working in. So uh, in the end, it um, I mean, it worked out relative. It didn't get as ugly as some of these things do uh, because we kept each other in mind as, as friends and humans. But there, there, there's nothing awesome about it. I, I don't wish it upon anybody. And, I, you know, the amount of times I talk to people who've been through these situations and it didn't resolve cleanly, it didn't resolve well, I, I feel fortunate that I had a, a friend and an ally in Todd where we could sort of work together to do what was best. Because um, don't forget, when you split up and you have a company, there are people. There's people whose salaries and their health benefits are all sort of relying on this thing you gave birth to again, this this company. And so it's it's not just about, you know, two people saying we don't see eye to eye. It's there's this thing that is an ecosystem now and, and anything we do next is going to help it or harm it. And we've got to be very mindful. So, so we tried to be. And um, I think it's a relative good story, you know, when you compare it to many of the other business split ups you hear about. And as you know, I can resonate with with some of this because I didn't have a true business divorce but uh catherine my co-founder effectively left the business and you could say almost kind of using the divorce metaphor that we uh separated right because uh, she's still a little bit involved and is aware of some of the happenings but i can relate to it and how it changes how we look at ourselves you know i, I should say it changed how i looked at myself as it related to the business and what i what i could do with it what i would do with it uh, to your point um, i think the people who are affected by the business, first and foremost, the team members, the employees, but then secondly, even vendors, strategic partners, those are the children. Those are the ones that get affected, right? And as you know, we've got such a large community, a large ecosystem that they all got neglected a little bit. I'm going to use that opportunity. I'm a, I'm a really lousy millennial because I'm 45, but uh, I haven't sent a text or called yet. So shout out to Catherine and Brad. Congratulations on the new baby. Uh, can't wait to see all of you together next time you guys come to Chicago for the uh, uh, the grand reveal Lion King style. Love you guys. <laughs> Dave, you strike me as the perfect example of a lone wolf at times. And at times I know you've even acknowledged that you would love nothing more than to be a lone wolf. Yet you must be a leader and you also embrace being a leader both at the company and on the ice as a hockey coach. Is that really the case? I mean, do you really embrace it? And do you see that you must be that? And if so, how do you manage it? Uh, that's a fun question and an awesome one. It, it goes back to my earlier point of, um, A, owning who you are and, and, and just having all of the pieces sort of work together. I have a piece of myself that very much desires to be going it alone. And the flip of that is I haven't built a life where, where that's going to really go well for me if I isolate myself. Uh, and the other thing is everything we know about well-being, even physical health, is that people who are loners or alone tend to have the worst results. So, so there's a very practical side to you know embracing the community around you and not not pushing away the love everybody's trying to give you all the time. And that and that's really what Lone Wolf's about. And uh, I originally got into sales because I saw an opportunity as as a younger guy who who wasn't yet fully capable of emotional expression inward or outward. To, to have a profession where I could just go get results and everybody would leave me the hell alone, which was, to me, awesome. FYI, when, when somebody says, like the sales guy in the organization, 
he's a he's a little iffy, but he gets results. It means he's a dick and he doesn't get along well with other people. Uh, and, and we leave him be because he's making money for everybody. And and ultimately, that's not a very gratifying person to be. And and I was coming to the conclusion that that wasn't going to suit me. So I, I still embrace my lone wolf characteristics. I, I don't let it go on for too long. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, you, you know, be the guy who eventually ends up in a shack with no power in, in Idaho or somewhere. So I have those little pockets. I allow them. I lean into them when they come. I don't know if you call it um, depression or loneliness or whatever, but I will lean into it for a little while. But I, I've developed a lot of methodology of like, okay, I've been a little day focused here. I'm going to break out of it. Uh, hockey is one of the great tools that I have because I'm working with young people, high school kids. I'm not allowed to be a lone wolf out there. I have to be fully and readily available, open, and uh, you know, intellectually and emotionally for these kids. And so that keeps me very honest. If I'm in one of those isolating moments, uh, the, the kids remind me that that's not allowed. So, so it's fun to be around uh, you know, young people who are challenging you to give of yourself. And, um, but yeah, it's a part of my personality, and, and it's, it's one that I've tried to minimize, but it's still there. So, Dave, you know that in Junto, uh, we talk about how the experiences and emotions from our personal life are brought to our workplaces, whether we know it or not. And the last few years have been a challenge for you personally um, in ways that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemies. I know how it's affected you on that side of the fence personally, uh, but I'd love to hear how it's affected your role as a leader at Eclipse. Um profoundly and negatively when you're the leader and you decide you're going to go into your cocoon you leave everybody else adrift and when you're isolating you're not clear in your vision you're not clear in in what the standards are we talk about standards a lot here you're not clear in what's expected of of people's roles and and the performance of the company so Without that clarity, people go adrift and and start trying to figure it out on their own. And people are looking for leadership. And so, when I've when I've gone into the cocoon, it has had very negative impact, not just on the the results of the company, uh, because we have good people who will drive the results, but more so on the culture. Uh, you know, people people were starting to feel strain and stress where it didn't exist before. I'll tell you, you know, over a couple of years and a bunch of goofy stuff happening where I reverted back to that um, early version of myself that when too much emotion hits, I go into my hidey hole there and push everybody away because that, that is a natural setting for me. It's a, it's a comfortable setting in terms of where I'm willing to go back to in, in very hard times. I've developed an enormous amount of compassion for other people in these last couple of years because what, what we all need to realize is Anybody you're interacting with, whether whether they're surly to you or grin as wide as all outdoors, maybe going through the absolute worst thing they've gone through to date in their life that day. And so my job is to is to try to be a little ray of sunshine for everybody I interact with, whether it's just passing someone on the street or a clerk at the grocery store or a customer or a vendor, whatever the case may be. I want to, you know, the, the old uh, Maya Angelouism. people don't remember what you said. They do remember how you made them feel. And so I want to go through life making people feel good. Like that guy's all right. And he, he put a grin on my face in, in a really bad day because there was a lot of days I was faking it over the last couple of years. And people would look at me and say, he seems like he's having a good day. And I wasn't. And so just having that compassion and then 
you know, allowing myself space to be, you know, unhappy, surly, down, depressed, whatever those emotions are, and then going and asking for help when it's getting to be too much. And that would be the piece that, that I take away over the, you know, over tough periods of my life. Just make sure you go and ask for help. You can't fix your sadness alone and um, find comfort in the in the arms of friends and loved ones is, is, is where I've gotten to. So, yeah, I, I absolutely you know, understand that life is a journey and a roller coaster and all of those uh, euphemisms we use. And so I'm okay with the down periods and I'm okay understanding that everybody else may be going through it exactly at this moment. And, you know, if I can touch them in, in a small and personal way on, on every interaction, then I'm doing okay. I want, I want to spread a lot of sunshine if I can. Speaking of compassion, Dave, I want you to address the idea of self-compassion. Uh, you've already alluded to the last two to three years that you've had uh, full of challenges, both personally and professionally. And so I've got a two-part question for you. Uh, how has this period shaped your ability to build self-compassion for yourself? And then secondly, how have you grown personally and professionally? That is one of those challenges, self-care, self-love, self-compassion, that I will be working on until they put me in the pine box. I'm an interesting vessel in that I, I have a fairly enormous capacity to give love and make everybody else feel great and solve everybody else's problems. I have a very hard time turning that inward, and and that is not a natural setting. That is that is work for me. Uh, it continues to be work. I'm better at it than I used to be, and I've got a long, long way to go. You know, the thing I have to remind myself of is it, it's it's okay to be loved. It, it's okay to accept help from other people. And I think we all forget this. It's okay to forgive yourself because you're the only one carrying your mistakes around. No, nobody gives a shit what you did wrong 10 years ago. And you're carrying that thing around like a boat anchor. And so, you know, learning to, to be able to let love come into me and compassion come into me, uh, being the, the, that tough guy part of me that we talked about at the beginning, like, I don't need your pity. Beat it. I don't want your pity. I, you know, but it's not pity. It's it's compassion and it's love. When when people feel bad for you because you're going through a thing, it, it's not because they're standing on some you know high block looking down at you, saying, "I pity this this person." They're saying, "I love this person and I want this pain to go away from them." So yeah, that that's a lifelong journey. I'm I'm excited to get to the point, you know, right before I pass on to the next realm where I'm like, ah, I get it. I'm fully able to, you know, forgive myself, receive love and compassion. And now I can, I can move on to the next thing. So yeah, absolute huge journey for me. And, and one where I feel like I get a little bit better and I have setbacks, you know, two steps forward, one steps back, but just keep moving forward and keep being the kind of person who realizes it's okay to, to let people love you and let that compassion come in. And I think when I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, that's a pretty common thing where there's a lot of really giving personalities. And when you give without taking back in, you're not refueling your tank. And so eventually what happens is this empty husk just sort of collapses. So you you have to sort of re-nourish yourself and your soul. And, and the way we do that is letting people love us and letting people help us. And I think it's a very common thread with, with a lot of us at these sort of founder positions who struggle because we're so ready to give the world everything, our ideas, our passion, and, and we feel selfish when we take things back. I was so caught up in listening to what you were saying that I want to come back, though, to the part of how you've grown. I can tell that you've grown, but only because I've known you for a long time. But I'd love for you to put it in your own words that after these last few years, can you think of a couple of 
ways that you've grown either personally or professionally? Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, I've learned patience, patience with others, patience with myself, patience for everything. That is, that is not something I was born with. Patience is a, a relatively new phenomenon for me. I've really evolved into being a much more patient person and patient with emotions too. I, I realized my emotions and others, Raman, I, I was not patient with them and I was shutting mine down and I would often shut other people's emotions down because they, they were making me uncomfortable. So just being able to be calm, sit back and let emotions sort of wash over me, whether they're others or mine, that's been one of my biggest growth things in the last couple of years, just letting that wave come over me and, and then sort of dealing with it as opposed to stopping it to deal with it. It's a huge, huge piece of growth. It's hard to put it into words even, but I feel it. And I, and I understand that I'm dealing with this stuff a lot differently than I have in the past. And, and sometimes I revert to my mean, as we all do. But when I'm really like fully engaged, I can let emotions you know, ring me around, knock me around, and then say, wow, that was intense. Now let me take the intellectual part of me and deal with that. You want to know one data point that proves that you've gotten more patient? So we've known each other almost seven years. And I'd say in the first four years, I probably heard you say 10 to 20 times that you wanted to blow everything up. You want to blow up your business. You want to blow up your relationships. You want to blow up where you live. You want to blow up everything. I haven't heard that once in the last two years. I still want to blow everything up, but, <laughs> I, but, but I, I just don't, I don't verbalize it as much because it annoys everybody. So, so in my head, I'm blowing everything up all the time still. Don't worry about that. That's still there. Uh, I'd like to think that it's just a, an example of your patience. Um, okay. How else have you grown? I've grown a lot recently in clarity. I, going back to the beginning of our conversation, my sort of stumbling into leadership, I've lived a life of what feels like relative randomness and this sort of happy accident where I keep sort of stumbling forward and, you know, good things happen, bad things happen. And in the end, I'm sort of out ahead. And what I realize is, is people don't want to follow the drunkard's walk of, you know, a leader staggering around. What they want is, is clarity. I, I have worked really, really hard in the last, frankly, six, eight months even just to focus on my clarity of purpose and vision. And a lot of that is very counter to my personality. I've, anybody who's listened through 10 minutes of this knows now that I'm very tangential and a, and a somewhat meandering mind. And so I can still be that, but I have to show clarity to others so that they can follow. Leaders can't say one thing today and the next thing tomorrow and expect people to continue to follow them with any level of trust or integrity. So it's really, for me, been about clarity of just my leadership and my vision, but also clarity of what matters to me and, you know, measuring my life and not whether we got 10 more customers, uh, but whether our customers we have love us and the, and the next one's going to love us too. And measuring the, the business, not solely in terms of capital, but are we getting people so embraced and ingrained in the Eclipse way of being that they, they're going to be with us forever philosophically? And then measuring my personal life and the love I can give and receive, not anything material or, or a trip I took or any of that stuff, but have I allowed myself to embrace the love that's all around me and, and, and trying to make its way through the wall here. So clarity is the word for me right now. And it's funny, when you have clarity, everything else calms down around you. You do become that calm eye in the center of the hurricane that you've built around you as an entrepreneur when you have clarity. All right. Well, Dave, we're going to uh, wrap up here. And uh, as we do in all of our Junto sessions, we're going to do that with uh, closing appreciations. 
Okay, I can start there. Um, it's multiple today, and I'll, and I'll keep it relatively brief. Again, for anybody who's not in Chicago, it has been a weird spring here. It's rained every single day for probably the last 60 here. Uh, I'm looking out the window with my dear friend Ramen here, and we see the sun shining, and I'm, I'm grateful that uh, the, the weather is is here, the, the sort of weather that makes everybody happy. I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude for Mara and Sadie, my, my partner, my daughter, who continue to push me towards bigger and better places on a, on a personal level. And I'm so happy to be here with my friend, just talking with my friend who I, I miss and who I love and who um, every time I get to sit with him, I remember how much I like being with him and in his presence. So thanks for having me today, Raman. Um, my appreciation is, and I don't think I've shared this because we've shared so many appreciations with each other over the years, uh, is your visualization when you're speaking. And you mentioned four or five things that literally painted a picture in my mind. And the only two that I can think of right now are when you're put into a pine box and then when you talked about the empty husk. And that is a trait of yours that I realized uh, has always been there, will be there. And I appreciate how that helps contribute to your ability to tell a story, make a point, and connect with people. Well, Dave, thanks so much. Like you said, um, it's just a wonderful privilege to be here with you as an old friend and um, uh, someone with whom I've shared a lot and vice versa. And I uh, appreciate you contributing to this episode. Thanks again for having me, Raman. Kathy Carroll is founder and CEO of Legacy Onward, which provides leadership and executive coaching services for family businesses. She's led a fascinating career, in my opinion, transitioning from corporate roles and management to running her family's business and then taking some time off and finally starting her own coaching company, Legacy Onward. She was one of the first people I asked to be a mentor for the Junto Institute. I was struck then and continue to be by her beautiful blend of emotional intelligence, financial savvy, business acumen, and a vibrant spirit. She's consistently received high marks as a mentor and has been highly supportive of the Junto community since day one. Welcome, Kathy. It's a delight to have you on the episode. Always a delight to speak with you, Raman. So let's start with uh, the first recollection you have of leadership. The first recollection is you know, something absurd like uh, Montessori <laughs> when I was a kid and, uh, you know, I was in one of the pre-K classes in Montessori and, um, you know, I followed in line behind the teacher and I learned how to push my chair in and set my tray up. And, you know, that was a form of leadership. So that was probably the earliest memory, mm -hmm. but it's not the most profound. The most profound memory of leadership is when I worked for a gentleman named Brent McNamara at United Airlines. He was the best boss he ever had. And he really pointed out to me what leadership is. Uh, he highlighted how leadership matters. And he helped me see that shenanigans would happen in the office and he would observe them. And he'd, he'd ask me like, you know, what do you notice about that? What impact does it have on your motivation? What impact does it have on, on your desire to be your best? Things like that. And that's, he is the one who highlighted for me the incredible importance of leadership. And this is in my mid to late thirties that this happened. So, you know, I had already been managing teams for a long time. I'd been doing this for quite a while. 
and I was a manager, uh, but it was the distinction between management and leadership that really got highlighted for me in that moment. And, uh, it has lasted with me forever. And the other thing that I'll say that I really appreciated about him is that he helped me trust my instincts about leadership because my instincts were very different from the way I was trained. I was raised in the Bob Crandall American Airlines era of very command and control, top-down leadership. And I thought that's how you were supposed to be. And it just never felt right. And I never got motivated in uh, response to that form of leadership. And so it was such a, a gift to me to have Brent help me trust my instincts and leadership. Um, and then I'll just add one more bit to that. And that is, even though I developed a much greater comfort level with a leadership style that was different from what I was taught, I still see value in the other leadership styles that I didn't connect with naturally. For example, command and control is really important in a crisis, right? In a crisis, I don't want, if, if, if you got hit by a, a bicycle or if you were riding a bike and you got hit by a truck, I'm not going to gather a group of people together and say, all right, now, which one of us, what's the, what's the best next step? Uh, you know, what should we do here? Um, does anyone have any ideas? Let's brainstorm. Let's get some, you know, toys on the table and, and we may get some flip charts going. No, no, you call the ambulance, you do CPR, right? Like that, that command and control has, a, has its place. And so what I discovered about leadership is that certainly I, I have a default style that I am attracted to, but my developmental journey as a leader has been actually sharpening the tool and broadening my leadership uh, capacities in ways that weren't that comfortable, knowing that leadership is really situational and I need to have the right arrow in the quiver um, when the situation demands. That's a great point. Uh, just this week, someone gave me the latest book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, and it's on leadership. And what she does is, I, I only flipped through it, so I don't know the details of it and haven't started the book yet, but she looks at, I think it's four presidents, and how they walked this line between transformational leadership and situational leadership, right? When could they be much more developmental, look long-term for the better of the nation versus when do they have to act in the moment? And so I'm really excited about looking into it. Okay, um, uh, what I'd love for you to, to talk about is kind of what this uh, podcast is all about, which is harmonizing business and the self. And as you know, Punto is all about that. And I'd love for you to talk about it in the context of your career journey, going from big business, corporate, working for others, to working for and with your father, to working for and with yourself. So I grew up in a family business. Um and it was a lot of drama. So I went corporate um, for a good 20 years. And um, in 2009, when I was a mid-level executive at United Airlines, my father asked me to run his business. So I got sucked back into the family business. And it was, um, it was a little terrifying, to be frank, because I didn't have a good relationship with my father. And I was scared to make myself vulnerable to him, frankly. Uh, he was a tough father. And uh, the idea of making myself emotionally or financially um, dependent on him was scary. And so instinctively, I wanted to run. And yet simultaneously and with an equally strong instinct, I kind of knew that was the, the wall of fire I had to walk through because I had so much stuff in my head from my background that was unresolved. And I would continue to run away from it until I actually confronted that wall of fire. And I was in my 
forties at the time, early forties at the time. And I, I guess I was ready. I was finally ready. I'd run away long enough. I was finally ready to, to, to confront it. So I ended up running his business for a few years. Um, it was actually a terrific experience in many ways. Um, it, it helped me, uh, gain a lot of confidence in my leadership. Uh, I had envisioned myself as a really good chief operating officer, a great number two. And as it turns out, under my leadership, we actually turned the business around. We we built a great team. We had very low attrition. We had really strong, profitable growth. And it it gave me a sense of confidence that I didn't have, uh, which was really heartwarming. And um, it was really hard working for my father. <laughs> uh, and I left uh, for all the right reasons. And I finally walked through that that flame um, and did the, the work I needed to do to get myself wrapped around that issue. And what I, what I finally realized um, pretty late in life and my, probably my mid to late forties is that my father is never going to be the father that I want, but he does the very best he can. Right. And so I've learned to accept my father for who he is, knowing that he he's not capable of being the father that I want him to be, but he's the father that I have and he's doing the very best he can. And that was such a release for me because so much of my life has been about trying to please people. And I think it comes really foundationally from trying to please him. And he's unpleasable. (laughs) He's impossible to please. So my sort of default coping mechanism in life, you know, people have the fight, flight, freeze, appease, whatever, you know, pick your acronym. Um, Appease is my kryptonite, right? My default coping strategy is to comply, to appease people. And it's so deeply compelling uh, for me to do that. And I think it comes from obviously trying to please an impossible person to please. And then my love, my mother, who I love is the ultimate pleaser, right? So the female role model for me was to please. And then the male role model for me was unpleasable. <laughs> uh, so when I finally get my arms around that, it was just this enormous release. Um, I left the business And then I had this newfound confidence in my leadership uh, capabilities. So I was on this mission to buy a business. I'm going to buy a business. I'm going to show the world that I can run a business. And that was just a really powerful ego drive that I had to prove mostly to myself, I think, that, um, that I could be successful as a leader. And as I sat with this journey for a period of time and I got introduced to the world of coaching, I thought, you know, when I, I had actually placed offers on, on three different businesses and, and when the third one fell through, I was pretty crushed. This is back in 2012 when there was nothing worth buying. <laughs> uh, you know, it was still in the throes of the, of the recovery from the financial crisis. Um, I kind of hit rock bottom and I said, well, what do I know that I want to do? I want to be a leadership coach. And I didn't know what on earth that meant. So I said, well, why don't I go get trained and then I can have some clients on the nights and the weekends and then I can run this great business. And then when I'm in my sixties, I'll be a coach. Well, I went through coaching training and I realized, oh, coaching is not anything like I thought it was. I thought I'd get to graduate and tell people how to lead. (laughs) It's not coaching at all. Uh, Coaches don't have all the right answers. Coaches have all the right questions. And, uh, And I realized that I could have used a coach when I was working for my father, for sure. And I looked at my life and I realized that my whole world prepared me for this opportunity to serve family business leaders, which is really what my sweet spot is in terms of coaching. So really the thing that held me back from starting a coaching practice was this story in my head that I'm not an entrepreneur. And I was very confident that I was not an entrepreneur. I was a good number two, right? I was a good, and I could take an already established business and I could lead it successfully, blah, blah, blah. But I was not an entrepreneur. And 
that held me back for so long from um, from finding that harmonization. And I think what what finally released that glitch for me uh, and the willingness to take a chance on being an entrepreneur was the realization that being a coach would allow me to live the life that I've always wanted to live, a life of autonomy. I finally gave myself permission to have self-care. Like self-care, I was so driven. I pushed myself so hard. I was such a taskmaster and so brutal on myself. And in the coaching profession, you know, as a coach, I want to model the kind of leader that I'd like to be. And that means I I have to give myself time to take some self-care. And that was, I was like, oh my gosh, I get to take a yoga class in the middle of the day and it's okay. You know, silly things like that was just such a ridiculous kind of release. But that was when my brain kind of switched and I realized I have the capability to, to be responsible. I have the ability to, I have the business skills. If I'm going to place bets on anyone, I sure as heck I'm going to place bets on me. You know, the old story of I couldn't do it, I'm not good enough, that was not serving me well. So I, I kind of said, what is holding me back? This is my calling. And I felt very mission-driven and very purposeful in, in bringing this service to this world. Kathy, you answered that question about as effectively as you could have. Thank you. That was wonderful. So you've talked a little bit about getting into coaching. Um, what I'm really intrigued by, because I, you and I met at the time that you went to Georgetown for that uh, certification program and have seen you build your coaching practice. You've done some work with our companies, both as a mentor and as a coach. And uh, knowing how devoted you are to growth and development, I'd love to hear how you've grown in these last five to seven years since you uh, started coaching, gained the certification? It's such a great question because the program that I uh, joined at Georgetown was called the Institute for Transformational Leadership. And it was a eight month program. Um, and at the end of the eight months, I asked myself, am I transformed? <laughs> and mm -hmm. I said, I guess so. <laughs> and then about 18 months to two years later, I reflected back on the person that I was two years earlier, and I did not recognize myself. It really is a transformational journey. And it's not a magic wand that happens with a, a click of a button or with a you know swish of a um, wrist. It's a developmental journey that happens over time. It's an unfolding of who you really are. And what I appreciated so much about the coaching training program was the journey of self-exploration, the gift of self-reflection that was so missing in my life. I, I didn't pause to get on the balcony and look at my life or look, look at the choices that I was making or reflect on the emotions that were driving my behavior. And the coaching training program began that journey. And it's just one of these gifts that keeps on giving. So once you have this magical skill it's a skill that you can continue to use on yourself over and over and over again. And of course you are fine in the context of your profession when you're working with others, but you, you do it with yourself as well. And uh, I, I see my life is just a continuous unfolding of who I really am, a continuous journey of self-discovery. And I, I still get tickled when I discover things about myself and it happens a lot. When I began 2019, I said, you know, this is the year I'm really going to, I'm really going to get 
deep with my inner pleaser. Like this is going to be my year of, of really reconciling my inner pleaser. And, and I had the mindset that I could kind of make that inner pleaser stop. And what I've realized now that I'm almost halfway through the year is that she's never going to go away. (laughs) And so I am learning to love my inner pleaser because she served me really, really well in some important parts of my life. And she still some, in some cases does serve me well. Um, and in some cases she doesn't. So what I'm doing now is I'm actually embracing my inner pleaser and I'm getting a lot more self-aware of when she serves me well and when she doesn't, so I can make different choices in the moment. You know, it's what you said earlier. It's the Viktor Frankl, right? Um, It's putting space between stimulus and response. And the more I am self-aware of the instinctive, you know, system one response, the Daniel Kahneman system one response to a threat, the more I am able to be mindful of the choices that I make. And so my life is filled with a lot more self-reflection. You know, I've developed a a meditation practice that I really developed at kicking and screaming. You know, they talk about it in coaching training. I'm like, meditation, meditation. And the more I go through this life, the more I value the pauses, the space between the notes that makes all the difference. So you have not only worked in and led a family business, your, your father's business, but then also in recent years as a coach, you have begun working with a lot of uh, leaders of family businesses and primarily the family members, right, of these family-owned and operated companies. What I'd love for you to, to share is how family businesses are different from all other businesses in less obvious and underappreciated ways. So, you know, many people understand intuitively that if it's a family business, they're family members, and that brings different dynamics. What are the less obvious and underappreciated ways that people like myself may not be aware of or those listening in might not be aware of, and you've only come to see that through this close work that you've done with them over the last several years? Yeah, after a 20-year corporate career, and then after spending several years working, uh, leading my father's business, it was such a stark juxtaposition of the two different leadership um, paradigms that it was really easy for me to see how different um, the experiences were. So the fundamental, unique aspect of leadership in a family business from my lens is that you've got two operating systems that are operating in your brain simultaneously with very different rules. You've got the business mindset, which is about competition and profits and meritocracy. And then you've got the family mindset, which is about fairness and sharing and unconditional love. Those are the rules, right? And those rules applied to the same situation will yield different results. For example, um, the easiest way to, to describe it is an inordinate number of family businesses have all family members in the business paid the same amount. Every single person who's a member of the family gets paid the same amount. That clearly is a family mindset rule, right? And that is when a parent says, I love my children. I love them all equally. I couldn't pay them differently. They're all equal members of the family. How could I pay one more? And in the business mindset, makes no sense whatsoever. That's a race to the bottom, right? No business can sustain that over a long period of time unless you're paying people, you know, ridiculously low wages, which, you know, it, it tends to be that everyone gets overpaid. And I, that manifestation, that that polarity between the rules of business and the rules of family is such a strain 
emotionally on family business leaders. Because when you're working in a system, you've got some leaders who have a pull preference for the business mindset. You have some family members and non-family members who have a a poll preference for the family mindset. And you have this tension because you you end up with factions with some people having, well, of course this is the right thing that to do. And then other people saying, well, of course this is the right thing to do. And it's very, very challenging as a leader to manage the tension between these two mindsets where you get different answers based on which brain set you're using at the time to answer it, to solve a problem. That is fascinating. I, I can't believe how much I, I was drawn into that. Um, Awesome. Okay. So I have a question about one of the things that you said about the equal pay for family members. You're a coach, so you're not there to tell them what to do. How do you reconcile that personally? If you're coaching me and I am the patriarch of the family business, I've got four kids in it and they're all earning $100,000 a year. And I'm telling you that my son is a slacker and doesn't even show up. And my daughter is the hardest worker of the four and is all in and she's someday going to take over this business. And the other two are kind of in between. How do you reconcile? And I can see this look on your face. Like you want to be able to tell me, change that around from a business standpoint, from a practical standpoint, because you know that how do you reconcile that yourself as a coach? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, It's actually quite easy for me. I don't pretend to know the right answer, right? I, do my best to have my own right answers for me. What my goal is as a coach is to help leaders get on the balcony and see a bigger, broader perspective so that they can make the right choices for them. It may serve that family really, really well to have everyone in the in that family pay, get paid the same amount. It may solve a different problem, which is uh, some sort of threat of, of inequality. What it often leads to in the long run is a resentment that happens on on both sides of the equation. The the real question that you have is, you know, how do I reconcile that? Yeah, I have, of course I have strong opinions about what I think people quote should do, but I don't should on my clients. <laughs> right? It's really tempting um, for me to tell them what I think to do, but that's probably the biggest developmental challenge I faced in learning how to be a coach was to not tell people what I think they should do. That was really, really hard. The second most challenging skill that I had to develop was to learn to actually dive into the domain of emotion instead of stay away from emotion. I was socialized as a young person. When you see emotion, you you talk about the bears or you talk about the cubs or you talk about the weather. In the coaching domain, that's where all the juice is. So when someone expresses an emotion, or even if they're not expressing emotion, the opportunity from a coaching lens is to actually peel the onion on that emotions because it's the emotion that drives behavior and it's behavior that drives the results. If you want to change your result, you have to go back, not just to the behavior and sometimes not just to the emotion, but to the assumptions and the beliefs that drive the emotion, that drive the behavior, that drive the results that you don't want. (laughs) Right? So it's this sort of deep dive, fascinating journey into people's hearts and souls. And when you help people become self-aware of the emotions, the assumptions, and the beliefs that are driving their behavior, they have a broader balcony view of what choices they have, and they may choose differently. The other belief that I have is it's not uncommon for a coaching question to land really flat or to get completely rejected, but it always plants a seed right? And that seed may not flourish for years, but five years, 10 years out, suddenly that seed that got planted 
by that one question a long, long time ago will suddenly take root and a new awareness will emerge. And that's what's so fun about this work that I do. I am in the business of creating awareness. How cool is that? It's fascinating. I love my work. Well, that's a great way for for us to conclude because it's so aligned, as you know, with so much of what we do at Junto, right? You touched on three really important things, which is, yes, helping create awareness, which is what happens. Um, Two is addressing the emotions, which you've seen actually emerge in Junto, especially the last three or four years. And then uh, third is you use the same line that we use, which is that until we don't shit on each other. Uh, <laughs> and so I appreciate that, that you do the same. Mm-hmm. So just as we do in the course of our regular sessions here, we're going to close with uh, a round of appreciations. And uh, I'll, I'll start off by sharing something that I'm not so sure I've shared in the past, but it's always been there. And I don't think I, I've ever articulated to you. I appreciate the clarity with which you speak, but also seem to think. I've just now learned and discovered and concluded that interacting with you, there's always so much clarity coming from your side. You have the right words. You tend to not repeat yourself. You make sense. And it's very invigorating and, dare I even say, uh, efficient, (laughs) because you don't ramble. And so I have a deep appreciation for your clarity. Why, thank you. I think I'm going to walk on a, on a cloud the rest of the day. And I would be delighted to share how much I've enjoyed the journey of getting to know you. We met, whatever, seven years ago. And I think in many ways, you and I have been on a parallel developmental path. Like we've kind of walked distantly, but side by side on a developmental journey. And so I see so much of me and you, and I see so much of you and me. One of the things that I was going to actually share that I appreciate, ironically, is um, the clarity and confidence that you bring to your thoughts. Like you're very well thought through. And I also experience you as one who's not remotely afraid of challenging a status quo or questioning a belief or, or sort of pushing an envelope or, or pushing harder on something. And that's, is missing in this world. And I so appreciate how you bring that to the world. Uh, I also am, as you know, so bought into your mission of Hunta, which is why I'm so pleased to be here today and thrilled to be a small part of the journey of bringing your mission to life. We're going to end right there. Thank you. After I listened to both interviews, I realized that the idea of clarity came up in each one. Dave Dyson talked about his journey in achieving clarity through his vision, values, and how he measures life satisfaction. And with Kathy Carroll, I shared my appreciation at the end of her ability to speak with such clarity, not just how she articulates words, but also what her message is. And it caused me to realize how powerful and important clarity is in our lives and our work. Reflecting on some of the things that Dave talked about, self-compassion, building patience, letting people love us, and coping with life's struggles, they're all things that, to varying extents, require clarity and acceptance. In fact, as I think back to the hardest periods of my life and career, every one was a period of lacking clarity, and in most cases, at a significantly high level. It's only been in the last five to eight years that I've increasingly gained clarity about what I want in life, what happiness and joy mean to me, and from where I derive meaning and purpose. I'm confident that at various points in my life, 
I've experienced clarity with any of those, but it's only been recently that I have clarity in all of them. And that's given me much greater confidence about my future and the ability to cope with both minor changes and major ones. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that what drives that clarity is very similar to what Dave was sharing. It's the power of vision, mission, and values. Three things that we talk a great deal about at the Junto Institute, both formally through our program, but then also a lot more informally through many conversations. My vision personally, both for myself as well as my vision for the Junto Institute, keep me focused on where I'm going and where we're going. My mission for Junto and my purpose for myself keep me motivated and inspired on a daily basis so that no matter how tough things get, no matter what twists and turns I face, I'm able to stay refreshed and make forward progress. And most importantly, perhaps, the values that we have for our business and the values and principles by which I live my life help me make decisions both large and small in scope. And so as a result, I realize that I'm rarely in a position of confusion, doubt, or uncertainty. And that's because I have greater clarity. It's one of those types of things that I don't think there's a strategy or a process by which we achieve this. But I do believe that there are tools and people that help us get to this point. Some of those tools in the business world might be vision, mission, and values. And I know personally what's helped tremendously is crafting my own mission statement several times in my adulthood. And at one point, even a mentor asked me to write out my own obituary. And that had a big impact on me and actually led to the development of my first mission statement. In addition, the other thing that I found to be really helpful is putting people around me who support and accept my own purpose, mission, vision, and values. I, like many other people, have had friends and family members around me who don't necessarily support or accept those. And I've finally reached a place where I'm comfortable not having them as a significant part of my life. Because the more support and encouragement and acceptance that I receive and have, the more able I am to achieve that gift of clarity and therefore, hopefully, actually be in greater position to achieve that vision and mission, which are so dear to me. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.